welcome back finally to my podcast. I'm so sorry it's been so long. Lots of life things have happened. Work got quite busy and now I'm 30 weeks pregnant. So I can't exactly promise regular uploads from here on in either. My plan though is just to release episodes as and when I have them and speaking of today I have the wonderful Sandra Greenbank on to talk about fertility. As you will hear Sandra is incredibly well respected in this field and her main role these days is to train other nutritional therapists myself included to be specialists in fertility nutrition as well as seeing her one-on-one clients. In this episode we cover diet of course because that is a super important way to improve egg health and sperm health but also fertility testing for example vaginal swabs, DNA fragmentation and other things you might consider with your nutritional therapist if you are undergoing any fertility treatment plus PCOS and how that affects pregnancy outcomes, male factor infertility, actually we spent a long time discussing how to boost sperm health, toxicity and its effect on fertility status and much more. There may be some topics in here that you might find sensitive or triggering such as miscarriage so please bear that in mind. You can find Sandra online at Sandra Greenbank underscore fertility and at fertility.nutrition.center. Okay on with the episode. Amazing. And we're live. My first podcast back. I'm slightly nervous, but I want to welcome Sandra Greenbank to State of Mind. Hi, Sandra. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this chat today. It feels very fitting um, for me at the moment to be talking about fertility um, and there's no one better to discuss that with. So before we get into the questions, why don't you give us a little brief intro to who you are and what you do? So my name is Sandra Greenbank. Um, I live just outside St Albans in in a lovely town called Harpenden. But um, so you might hear from my accent, I'm from Sweden. Um, I've been here a very long time and... um, yeah, I qualified as a nutritional therapist back in 2009 at the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. Um, and ever since then, I've been specialising in helping um, couples conceive. Um, and and I've got three children myself as well. And um, I think it was a, f- a few years ago now, um, you know, I used to mentor nutritional therapists individually and helping them with their fertility cases. And um I realised that actually there was there was quite a lot of support and training needed because obviously I had sort of over the years I had kind of trained and worked with lots and lots of different practitioners and been to lots of conferences and read all the books and all of this and um you know I realised that there wasn't really one place for people to go and really understand and learn what they needed to know to support a couple who were struggling to conceive and so I decided to then create a training program and that um, has evolved into the Fertility Nutrition Centre, which is where um, it's, it's the only programme of its kind um, in, in Europe where nutritional therapists can come and learn um, everything that there is to know and, and be supported, I suppose, um, in this area. Um, so, yeah, so that's where I'm at now. That's where I focus my time. Um, and it's lovely work. Amazing. 
And I am currently doing Sandra's program for any other nutritional therapists listening. And it's really wonderful. It gives you so much confidence. And I just had my first call this morning, actually, with a couple. Uh, I've done lots of like fertility work with just women, but it was my first my first call with um, a male and a female partner. And it was quite kind of like, oh, I'm actually doing this now. It feels really nice. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit different. It's a bit different because you have to work with two. Well, I believe that you should work with both partners and not just the female. And um, that's quite a big barrier, I think, for nutritionists to kind of overcome. Mm. It feels a bit more daunting sitting there yeah. with two people in front of you. Yeah. But um, as you say, it's so valuable. And we're going to get on to talking why it is so important in this mm. day and age to work with both partners because both male and female, we're we're up against it when it comes to our fertility these days, I feel. Um, It's just getting harder and harder (laughs) to have a baby. Um, So I wanted to start off by asking you, why do you think there is, and and again, this is my opinion, but I I think there is a, a big misconception around how much we can actually benefit our fertility status via things like nutrition and diet and lifestyle. Because the sort of common tagline is that, you know, it, you know, eating well, we think, you know, it definitely helps or reducing alcohol definitely helps. But there is actually so much research and so much more we can do. But why do you why do you think that there may still be that disconnect between actually how valuable nutritional therapists can be to a fertility journey? Um, I think I mean, I think that since I've been doing this now since 2009 obviously I've been around a while things are definitely changing but I don't know whether it's partly because we're told that you know from from very early age that you know you'll get pregnant the minute you're you know you look at a boy and you have to be careful and you know we spend all our life you know all us early sort of adult life I suppose being so so careful and then there is the you know, we're looking at teenage pregnancies and there are people who are, you know, who cane it and they get pregnant and they have babies and they have no problems. And, you know, you sort of, that's, that's, that's that side of it. And there's also the idea that, well, if you do have any problem, problems, there's always IVF and IVF, IVF is the answer, which, which is not mm-hmm. <laughs> um, necessarily for a lot of people, or even if you do, you know, lots of people do have to have IVF, but even if you do, then you can increase your chances of a, well, a positive test result, obviously, but then also a healthy pregnancy Mm. um, by preparing adequately. And I think that one of the problems is that we, or the one thing that we come up against a lot is that the medical profession are not trained in this area. And therefore, they just don't know, because unless you go and actively seek out the data and the studies, you're not going to know this uh, and you know I think this is a something that we come up with in up against in all areas of nutrition is that you know a doctor or consultant will poo-poo the idea that food and diet can help help your condition or can help your you know whatever it may be um, autoimmune disease or skin problems or fertility or you know all of this but the, there's an enormous amount of data and it's just that you know just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist mm. Um, and I, I think that's one of the main problems. But it, this, this is really beginning to change now. And I mean, it, you can't dispute the fact 
that it does help so many different things, you know, lowering inflammation, you know, your diet, but we can, we can support ovulation by changing your diet. We can support egg health. We can support sperm health. We can, and it's not just diet that we look at, is it as well as, you know, it's ruling out various infections um, and, and, and lots of other things that may be going on, nutrition deficiencies. And it just is, it's all so relevant to life, Mm. you know, obviously it's going to make a difference but it yeah I think it's it's the attitude of the the medical profession generally Mm. um that doesn't help all of the time um I don't know what do you think yeah yeah I think I think it's I think I agree with you there and and it is so funny isn't it how we spend most of our life trying not not most of but a lot of our life trying really hard not to get pregnant and then when you want to get pregnant it doesn't work Mm. and you know something like taking three months to improve egg quality through diet and lifestyle is just not on people's radar at all Mm. and I think you know most of us assume that when we need to do the work is once we we've got that positive test so it's Mm. like oh now I need to reduce alcohol now I need to um, eat better now I need to think about maybe what I'm like using on my skin or what I'm inhaling when I'm spraying stuff on myself in the bathroom in the morning and actually we can do so much more beforehand and that's when it really matters um so it's great that 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 message is is getting out there and you know I do agree with you that we have IVF and we have ICSI and we have all these amazing technologies but the success rate for IVF is still only 40% I mean you think it's you'd think in this day and age it would be so much higher yeah I mean you know it's got you know it's age related as well I suppose but yeah I agree um with the idea that you you suddenly become quite conscious of what you're putting in on your plate and on your skin once you're pregnant, but actually, there's lots of data to. I mean, folate is one one only one nutrient, but we know that the baby in utero actually draws from your storage, which is laid down for twelve weeks before you get pregnant. So what you start eating at that point is kind of three months too late, and it's the same with zinc and lots mm. of other nutrients and. If you're going into pregnancy depleted, um, you're at much higher risk. for. Actually, most likely baby will get what baby needs, but it's at the expense of the mum's storage or the mum's. Mm. And then you end up, you know, having potentially low energy or a higher risk for postnatal depression or prenatal depression and all sorts of other things. And, you know, we want mother to thrive as well, not just baby yeah. um, during and after pregnancy as well. Yeah, and I think that's something that we need to, you know, pay more attention to that pregnancy is a very nutrient deficient state and it's a really it's a really vulnerable state to be in, you know, if we think back many 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 years one of the reasons I think it's so difficult to conceive in this day and age is because physiologically we we just our bodies wouldn't have allowed us to do so if we weren't safe, if we weren't nourished, if we weren't, you know, being looked after in our in our communities and these days we have so many stresses from every aspect Mm. of our life that I think a lot of the time women's bodies just don't inherently feel that kind of safety connection that they're not adequately nourished and um yeah your your body's super clever it's not gonna nine months of, of pregnancy is it's a long time and it's and it's like I said it's a vulnerable state to be in so you've got to 
think about that, I think, before you <laughs> before you try so as to not be too disappointed. But um, Yeah, and I think from, from, from the male partner side as well, you know, 50% of the baby comes from him. Yeah. And he's out of the equation at the once your partner is pregnant, you're, you know, you're off the hook, I suppose, but mm. also then you, you have lost your power to make any change, any, any, any changes. And, you know, we know from studies looking at children's health, actually, that, you know, their, their future health is dependent on preconception nutrition for both partners. So if you want a mm. child that's going to be healthy and well in late, into later life and, you know, lower risk of heart disease and all of this actually both partners have an enormous um opportunity in those three months to prepare themselves and male fertility is highly vulnerable to environmental exposures as well and we know that partly because of how we're seeing male fertility decline so rapidly mm. um and and the, all, the researchers are kind of united in their belief that this is because of modern life and modern exposures to plastics and pollution and you know you we can't live in a pollution-free environment it doesn't exist anymore on planet earth but there's so much you can do mm. to reduce your exposure and to also support your body's own detoxification system so that you're um you know you're making you're you're kind of like stacking everything in the in in your favor and your baby's favor yeah and I think it's important to say that you know for people that are listening that you know we we all know people that conceived on a wild night out where they were (laughs) there was loads of alcohol involved and and go on to have really healthy pregnancies and really healthy children but I think from you know just to sort of um caveat the podcast episode that you know Sandra and I are going to be talking about Mm. optimizing and what is optimal um so that's why we're talking about this sort of preconception period um so to speak so when you're working in your clinical practice where do you start with a couple that is trying to conceive um and how long should you how long should they leave it before coming to seek help if it's Mm. not working out so, I mean, it was always my hope and dream that couples would come and see me before they even started trying, before they ever knew that there may be a problem. Or um, I've had a few of those in, in the last sort of 15 years or whatever, but, you know, not enough. But um, I think that that is the ultimate dream that everyone would have their kind of diet and lifestyle and nutrients checked out and stuff. But I suppose if somebody's um been trying and struggling um I think as soon as as soon as you know there might be a problem come and see us because we will review your test results any test results that you've had um with a slightly different lens from your kind of general practitioners so we were looked at like you said at optimal levels of all the nutrients for example as opposed to do you fit in in the sort of sick or not sick parameters mm-hmm. um because, you know, we don't want to be sort of skirting near the edges. We want to be generally in the middle. Um, you know, if I mean, that's a very broad sort of generalisation. But um, and so, yeah, we will review, review any any test results. We will look at any tests that we would like to run. So, you know, we might write to your GP or we might order a test privately. Or we might refer you to an endocrinologist or um, a, 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 yeah, a gynecologist, whatever it might be. Um, we at the Fertility Nutrition Centre, we tend to do a vaginal swab with all our female clients. Um, I think it's really, really important 
there can be various infections that can affect your ability to conceive or stay pregnant that um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be checked for you wouldn't be screened for in in a general practice or at your IVF clinic that's really really important we're finding that's an enormous part of the work that we do is actually vaginal health and if there is an mm. issue there um, we will also screen the male partner because um, a you can be passing infections back and forth but also it can infections can affect both partners not just the female mm. partner um, and what sort of um, infections might those be Sandra? So for example urea plasma, um, bacterial vaginosis, candida, um, strep infections I mean there could be lots of different things and what we're looking for is also levels of inflammation um, so Thomas the miscarriage charity actually came up with a study and I think it was only a month or two ago um, that did show that your if you had low levels of lactobacillus which is what we want we want to have lactobacillus um, in our in our vaginal tract um, and if you have low levels as well as high levels of inflammation um, that predisposes you to miscarriage. And so mm. this is a sort of, it's a new study and, and I love that it's in the kind of general public now and it's in the conventional uh, textbooks or whatever, or, you know, it's always out there now, but we've been working with this for years. Like it's it's not a new thing for us, but I suppose it's spotlight, spotlight is sort of shining on the things now that we've been looking at I mean equally you know low progesterone is something that we come up against time and time again and you know we we used to be um that used to be poo-pooed by the medical profession but now we do have the studies as of I think it just a couple of years ago now that shows that actually if you've had repeated miscarriages associated with bleeding that you you are again um you can save a pregnancy by giving that that woman um progesterone in the early pregnancy so you know those are some of the things that we look at or rule out as issues we work on really figuring out your cycle as well and when you are ovulating because most women actually don't ovulate on day 14 even though this is what we're told mm-hmm. in the textbooks and at school but you know it's just an average day but you know a lot of women will actually ovulate before that, well before that, or even after. Mm. And so they might be literally just missing the day of mm. the, the trying on the, on the correct day. So really figuring out what's going on there and then testing the progesterone on the right day then. Because once you know when you ovulate, we know more about when we should be testing the progesterone. Um Gosh, I mean, we do a semen analysis or we review a semen analysis. Um, if there's any concern there, we'll do a semen culture. Um, often a urinary culture for the male partner is helpful as well. We use a lot of DNA fragmentation testing, um, which is looking mm-hmm. at the integrity of the DNA that's being passed on to the, the egg, um, which then makes up the the, the fetus or the, the, the embryo. And um, I mean... The vast majority of miscarriages or, or pregnancies that don't have, you know, don't progress is down to DNA errors within the DNA within the genetic makeup of the the, the embryo, and you can have a perfectly normal semen analysis and still not have intact DNA. Mm. Um, and so this is why we really think it's really important to check this because, from a male perspective, you know, that's still only a 
a semen sample that they have to give. Whereas if we miss that part of the puzzle and the female is, you know, we're looking at blood tests, swabs, potentially some invasive sort of um, very invasive testing uh, and, you know, endoscopies and all sorts of things. And um, I just think it's worth doing for the sake of a very simple test and it's not particularly expensive. Just rule that side out. And then we know that if everything looks great on his side, then we're good to go, you know, with the other side. But Mm. um, I personally believe that a lot of treatment, IVF treatment particularly, is a person having treatment on behalf of somebody else. Right. Because he has not been checked out and supported. And the kind of general message I seem to be hearing from clinics is that they don't do DNA fragmentation testing because there's nothing you can do about the result anyway. So the only solution would be ICSI, which is choosing a sperm that looks okay on on a magnifying glass and then injecting that into the egg and hoping for the best. But Mm. um, that's not true. Um, And we have some urologists who are very, very um, good at male fertility specifically. And unfortunately, they're... They're, they are few and far between. Hmm. Um, and, and they're very supportive of our work as nutritionists as well and so in helping men in, with their fertility. Uh, I mean, there could be medical reasons as well, like a varicocele, for example, or um, trauma, um, perhaps when they were young, um, infections again, um, or other things like cystic fibrosis. But there's so much we can do um, in supporting male fertility, mm. it's interesting. Um, when we were when I was we were going through our fertility journey at the clinic, I think they said it they wanted to go ahead with ICSI based on a semen analysis. Um, but I knew that because we'd had one done the year previously, um, and my husband had just had COVID, mm. and um, as we know, anything that heats up the testes like a virus um, is going to affect semen quality and they said oh it's fine we'll just do ICSI and I looked into it and I was like what is ICSI and they sent me this video where they inject the sperm into the egg with a needle and I thought well that looks quite invasive I'm not sure if I really want to do that and you know I really liked the idea that in in IVF that the egg self-selects which sperm she wants and I was like very confident that my egg (laughs) would select a good sperm Um, so I said no no give us three months we'll go away and we'll work on this and I was a real ball buster with my husband's diet, my husband's diet, and what he was eating, and um, we were absolutely fine to go ahead with IVF in the end. But they did say that it was a very, very high percentage that of of ICSI that they do at the clinic, um, much more common than IVF, because I think it's. I don't know whether they just assume it's it's easier because, you know, you're you're choosing what looks like a good sperm, but. Yeah, you're so right. There's this, uh, we're very quick to jump to, let's just do this because it'll be better. But rather than let's put the work in Mm. to really do things from the ground level up to to get a better outcome. Um, Yeah. So what sort of, what sort of things would you, talking about that kind of male factor in fertility Mm. then. Firstly, um, you mentioned kind of environmental 
um, factors mm-hmm. that affect mm-hmm. sperm quality. Let's talk about what those would be. And then what sort of interventions would you be using? So for male fertility, um, it's, you know, air pollution is massively impactful. So, I mean, sometimes it's just about getting them to take a different route to work if they commute in heavy traffic. Loads of men love to cycle um, either to work or on weekends. And unfortunately, cycling is kind of like a double whammy because you're exposing yourself to potentially to heavy pollution. Um, And I used to cycle in London, so I know exactly what it's like. It's horrific. And, you know, you sort of like blow your nose at the end of the day and it's black. You know, it's so bad. Yes. I don't miss yeah. that at all. Oh and, my gosh. Um, no, I'm sure you don't get that in Cornwall now. So, yeah, but, and then, and the other thing is obviously compression to the testicles, which causes heat. Um, and so, in, in terms of that, actually, you can get saddles that kind of have a little, a little dip, or you can, I think you can even get pants now with a sort of ice, a little sort of pocket for an ice pack or something but I, you know <laughs> I tend to just kind of ask oh, and, and now peloton bikes are so um so popular as well and again you're not out in traffic but you're still compressing that area that needs blood flow because you need the blood to bring nutrients to the area but also to remove toxins and you know and then there's the heat aspect as well and you know if you're a chef that works in a, in a hot kitchen for example all day long you're exposing yourself to hot air. I had a male male client who would not give up his hot bath and glass of wine of an evening after work because it was the only thing that would help him relax and he sort of just didn't mm. want to live without it. And, you know, some of these things are quite tricky, but, but especially air pollution, you know, what can you do to reduce your exposure? And sometimes uh, the air quality inside your home can be worse than outside, especially if you have recently bought new furniture, sofas, uh, mattresses, carpets, you've been painting. I mean, gosh, I really don't want to sort of stress anyone out, but, you know, there are some simple things you can do, like open the windows every day, um, get a a filter, an air filter, ideally get a decent water filter as well, avoid drinking out of plastics, avoid putting your lunch in a plastic box or, you know, using plastics Mm. to store your food in, especially the food that's kind of got a sauce or an oil or something where actually the it, it sort of tends to draw in the plastic, plastic chemicals into the food. Uh, I'm not so worried about kind of rice and beans in a packet because it's not sort of soaking up the plastic as such, but um, canned food as well. So, you know, try and get food in glass jars if you can. Um, I know it takes a bit of kind of getting used to and it's it's a bit of, it's more effort because, you know, Modern life is kind of, we go to the supermarket and everything is quick and it's easy and every, you know, we want to be able to grab and go. But actually, sometimes just looking at more whole foods and looking at buying foods that are more, um, you know, like you buy a piece of meat and then you buy your, I don't know, whatever it is, rather than buying the packaged food, you're sort of getting it and cooking it from scratch. That can make mm. a huge difference to your exposure to mm you know um oils that you don't want to be exposed to and plastics and yeah and i think it's important to say as well that you know i think sometimes clients expect us to do all the complicated testing and and walk them through their blood tests and all of these things and then actually what we spend the time talking about is um 
oh, you could get this really great brand of glass Tupperware. Um, And it sort of feels a bit sort of like woo-woo. And and there are definitely people out there that, you know, they sort of just poo-poo all of this plastic nonsense and come on, it can't be that bad. And I'm still alive, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I just wanted to flag that everything you're saying is based on on clinical data from from research papers that that are Mm. readily available. And, you know, even something like... um, Usually I do not have this sort of stuff to mind, but it's just because I was looking at it this morning with this couple. You know, even in um, 2010, they did a a study, didn't they, in China where they looked at BPA Mm. and um, semen quality and found that that men that had the most exposure to BPA and plastics had reduced semen quality. And, um, you know, we get everything BPA-free these days, but there's also BPS and BP whatever. Mm. And, you know, they, they, they find a way to to um, slip these things into our everyday life. And it it is quite hard if you're going for convenience to avoid them. And actually, sometimes, as you say, it's just a case of giving yourself three months and saying, I am actually going to cook from scratch more. And it's a a drop in the ocean in comparison to, um, you know, that having a healthy pregnancy and having a healthy baby is is surely outweighs a little... um, yeah on your I mean, part. you know sometimes those are the skills that you take through into your your family life and you teach your children how to live well and I think you know yeah BPA and BP you know the BPA free stay clear of anything BPA free because actually BPS is so there's some studies that shows that actually it may be even worse but just because it's not yet proven to be bad for you um, it's allowed near our food but you know I'm sure in years right. to come and it's the same with triclosan the sort of antibacterial agents in soaps and hand gels you know they're banned mm. in some other countries and you know this huge which we've all been rubbing yeah well not me but you know it's like people look at me like I'm sort of some sort of weirdo when I say oh you yeah. know that stuff's probably not so good for your fertility and they're kind of like what but you know even the till receipts are <laughs> impregnated with BPA and so, you know, I don't yeah. touch them. I refuse to take them unless I absolutely have to. And I sort of handled them like um, that sort of snot paper. But um, I think, yeah, there's so there's so much you can do. And the, the, the studies on fish, and obviously we're not fish, but, you know, they when they're exposed to certain dioxins and phthalates, they actually um, become infertile. And, you know, if wow. that's, what happened, that's what's happening to our ocean life, then you know, surely it must have some sort of impact on us as well. And, you know, we're, we're mm. eating plastics all day long and, you know, it you can't get away from it, but you can reduce your exposure, you know, get a, get a water bottle, which is made from stainless steel or, or glass and fill it at home from your water filter and take it with you instead of buying plastic bottles. Um, you know, just little things like that. And buying organic, I know, I know food prices are going up. I know it's all so depressing, but... You know, if you look up the the dirty, what is it, the clean 15 and the dirty, dirty dozen, dozen. Mm. Um, those are some of the foods that are most and least sprayed. So at least if you choose those particular foods and buy them organic, you're making a difference. And they tend to be strawberries, which are coming up in season, peaches, apples and pears, spinach. Um, what else? Mm. All the things that we tend to eat without washing them yeah or just you know you, you sort of hold it under the tap but actually they're petrochemicals so they're oil so you need to actually use a detergent to get it off and anyway it's soaked into the flesh as well so even if you yeah. peel it you're not going to get rid of it and um 
and lentils and oats as well and chickpeas are very important to buy organic um but then there are things that are not so important my husband said to me the other day because i came home from the supermarket and i was telling him how i'd seen um um a mum and this is not me having a go. I just think, you know, everyone is doing their absolute best. Um, but there was a mum at the checkout with her daughter, her toddler in the trolley. And the toddler was having a snack of the grapes that they yeah. had just paid for, like yeah. non-organic grapes, which are just like the absolute worst. And I came home and I said to Nick, I was like, oh, I was like so nervous for this child, like all of the toxins. He's like isn't the burden of knowledge sometimes yeah. for you just too much? I was like, yes, yeah. yes, it is. Because life is stressful when you when you look at all these things. But you know, um, I would love to not know what I know. But once you know, you can't unknow it. And it, and this is, the, this is actually one of the issues that we're face, facing. And it is stressful for clients to try and, you know, suddenly your bathroom cabinet, everything you've got in your kitchen is like the enemy and you're sort of just so overwhelmed. And you mm. can't, you know, I, don't try to tackle it all in one go because it's not it's just going to be overwhelming and you'll, you will fail and, you know, just kind of go, okay, next time I buy a bathroom product or a new body lotion or whatever it is, then, you know, I will look for something that's more natural, a little more, bit more natural, um, with less chemicals and, you know, just kind of go little by little and don't try to do an all in one go. But one word on grapes, actually, is they're extremely heavily sprayed and, I don't think they wash them before they make wine. I think it all no. goes in. And so wine, if you are going to drink it, which, you know, obviously, ideally, you know, we would say to, to minimise what you're drinking because it's, it's a toxin in itself, but try to get organic and it is worth spending that little bit extra, especially if you're having, it's a, it's a rare treat. It should be a rare treat when you're preparing to, to get pregnant um, because that is... A, it's just so, um, it's so highly polluted. Mm, and it's a quick win ultimately, isn't it? It's an yeah. easy swap. So thinking about um, egg health and sperm health, which ultimately if if you were to see a couple before they had, you know, before they had had test results done, before they had come up against um, roadblocks and, and issues and et cetera, you, that's ultimately what we would be working on to begin yeah. with. So what would your let's say top five things for sperm health and top five things for egg health be well, to check out to look to testing well think you know things th to do okay. like in my head i'm thinking you know for for men something like making sure their diet is high enough in zinc would be yeah. really important um or okay. you know things like that so for men let's think so uh zinc zinc is really really important for male fertility and also partly partly because it actually protects the DNA inside the head of the sperm, which is obviously the DNA that's passed on to the egg. So you do really need that zinc to be um, there in the diet. But the other thing about zinc is actually your absorption. Is it, we, our absorption can be quite easily and, and um, you know, quite often impaired because of stress and various other things that actually impacts your I'm not, I don't want to go into it too much, but it does impact your absorption. So actually eating, chewing your food properly and eating whilst you're relaxed and um, not running around is actually helpful in terms of improving your absorption of things. So that's really important. Vitamin D, again, is really, really important for both partners. So that would be top of, one of my top five for both partners. And, you know, 
right now in the UK, you can actually absorb zinc from the sun if you are out in the sun. Vitamin D from oh, sorry, the sun. Sorry, vitamin D from the sun. If you're actually in the sun at the right time of the day, not covered up mm-hmm. with clothes or cream. So, you know, we're told by our dermatologists that we must wear cream at all times all year long. Um, but actually that obviously is going to then impact your ability to absorb vitamin D. Also, the darker your skin colour, the harder it is for you to absorb enough. Um, the general rule is that if the, if your uh, if your own shade is longer than you, you can't absorb vitamin D because um, the rays are not hitting your skin at the right angle. So April to September, October ish, um, you can absorb it if you're out in the sun in the middle of the day. And generally, we would recommend about fifteen minutes a day with face and arms uncovered. But that's that's a very general rule because it's very variable um mm-hmm. depending on your skin color and your genetics as well how good you are absorbing it and also retaining it but i think that is one thing that i would recommend everybody tests just get a test um generally your gp won't test because they assume everyone to be low anyway um and they they will just tell you to take vitamin d but actually unless you've got a test result you don't know how much to take um and some mm. people are actually severely severely deficient um and you can order it online for like 35 pounds like it's it's worth ordering um so zinc vitamin d um yeah i mean for men you know don't wear just just general general rules around sort of heat around the testicles i guess don't wear tight jeans um don't wear skinny jeans don't heat don't put your car heat heating seat or seat heating on in the winter um avoid hot baths um think about how much you're cycling that kind of thing um for men sleep is really important also for their testosterone levels and we need good levels of testosterone for sperm health but also for our libido um and i know this Mm. can be something that can be quite tricky obviously when you are trying to conceive and it sort of becomes a must do instead of something you necessarily want to do at that moment in time um and it's the pressure as well but um a lot of men i think find it not very macho to, to go to bed early. Um, and it is really important that you're focused on your sleep. Mm. If sleep is an issue for you, um, you know, seven to eight hours a night of good quality sleep should be good. How many is that? Is that four? <laughs> yeah, plenty. And I, I'd, I'd add stress to the yeah, mix as well, yeah. because we know how that affects testosterone production yeah. too. So you know, and and again, it's it's that kind of catch twenty two because the whole fertility mm. journey can be incredibly stressful, and it just goes round and round in a circle. And actually, what you need to be doing is is, you know, imagining you're lying on a beach somewhere. Um, okay, what about egg health yeah. then? I'm, you know, m- mm. much of the same, I'd imagine. Yeah, much of the same. So we would look we would look for nutrient deficiencies and vitamin D, like I mentioned, uh, a vaginal swab. I think is really important, and um, you know, I would. I would work with the nutritional therapist who will order that for you. Um, you're not going to be able to get it through your sort of conventional medical practitioner yet anyway. Um, a thyroid screen, I think, is essential. Look, checking for your... Um, what you're looking for is a test that, that measures at least your TSH, your T4, and your antibody levels as well, which, again, you might have had your thyroid checked by your doctor and um, most likely they won't have checked all of the parameters that we need to look at. Again, you can order a test yourself online. It's not particularly expensive. Um, a blood draw generally then is, is better than a skin prick. 
Um, yeah, and then for both partners, like we've talked lots about pollution and reducing your exposure to pollution, I think is really important. And the other thing we haven't talked about at all, which is actually one of the first things that you we would do with any client is to balance their blood sugar levels. Mm. Because your blood sugar, if it's up and down, it's going to affect your hormone levels and that is going to have a knock-on effect on inflammation. And inflammation is bad news for fertility, especially if it's in and around your pelvic cavity. It has an impact on your egg health. Um, so yeah, but so working with diet ultimately, diet, yeah, making sure. I mean, you know, and the key to blood blood sugar balance is to avoid the sort of sort of white sweet foods. You know, the sort of white bread and white pasta, and actually having mm. whole grain varieties. Making sure you have protein and fat with every meal. So. Um, you know, looking for your protein source and looking for your fat source in every single meal and not having your carb- carbohydrates on their own. Yeah. Um, I know you're quite open these days and, and just say if it's not a topic you want to delve into, but you're quite open about um, that you don't work with strictly vegan couples who are trying to conceive anymore because it's ultimately a, a very very uphill battle and as you were just saying you know we need to be basing our meals around that really good quality source of protein those fats and actually for for blood sugar that can be incredibly hard because when we're looking at things like legumes which are a, a good source of you know plant-based protein they're sort of like 70 percent mm. correct yeah, me if i'm wrong but carbohydrates yeah so actually, it's you can never just get straight protein. So you're always going to have that kind of blood sugar spike. Um, how important is it for uh, anyone listening to this podcast who is on a plant-based diet? And I think probably there won't be that many people because they likely follow me on social media already. Um, but to be to be thinking very carefully about dietary changes whether they might actually want to change anything for that period of trying to conceive and pregnancy or if they're not prepared to do that um you know supplementation i guess okay yeah so vegan vegan diets i just want to say i i don't work with clients who are vegan and this is because i don't believe i would never take on a client that i don't believe i can make a a big um impact on if I suppose if that if that so mm-hmm. so if if you know we all we would always have a discovery call with any potential client before to try and establish whether we even think we can help them because if I don't think I can help someone I will send them off to someone who I believe is better placed to to do that and so you know yeah. it's not just vegans and and it's not vegan bashing I think it's great to be obviously looking after our animals and the planet and I definitely believe in um animal husbandry and you know quality of the meat that you're eating and and also eating a predominantly plant-based diet I think is actually really important and lots of people obviously are vegans for religious reasons and I'm not about to tell those people that they need to be eating meat or 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 if or eat you know if you are vegan listening to this it's not your fault that you can't get pregnant you know but there's so much that comes in into this discussion and it's almost a podcast episode on its own, but a vegan diet ultimately is lacking a lot of nutrients that you need for a healthy pregnancy. 
um, iodine, which is important for thyroid health for the baby, but also for, for, for the mum, B12, um, vitamin D, um, iron, choline, choline, um, omega-3. I know that you can take an algae-based omega-3 supplements. I know that you can take, you know, there's all these things you can take, but ultimately the vegan protein sources don't contain the amino acids in the same uh, in the same quantities as meat-based products do I suppose animal-based products do and also it's it's such a tricky subject I know that there are some quite high profile celebrities who have had a vegan diet and they actually bring up their children vegan as well but the, the, the research is actually not um it's not supporting um this it it, it does impact the child's growth mm. potentially and and some other things as well if you're if you're raising them vegan and so you have to be super careful and you have to work with a, a, a nutritionist who's happy to really 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 su- support you closely and you would be looking at very regular testing in my opinion to make sure that Mm. you're not inadvertently putting yourself your baby's health at risk um and you know I'm not talking about eating sort of a chicken breast every single day or you know for for sure plant-based protein is really important as well but you know there's only so much tofu you can eat yeah um (laughs) and tofu comes with its own potential issues if you sort of overdo it so it's just so tricky um but you you have to be really really careful. But even if you do have a vegan pregnancy, I think it's it's not in your child's interest to actually then be weaned on a vegan diet. I'm sorry to say. Mm. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a very fair and very diplomatic answer. And you're only you're only answering from a place of you know the research and the evidence um, ultimately. And I think it's an important message to to get out there. Um, so do we have time, Sandra, to quickly delve into folate versus folic acid? Mm -hmm. Because I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that is sort of the only, um, I remember when I went to my very first IVF appointment, which was a couple of years ago now, because we, we kind of started the process and then I was like, oh no, I don't know, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. Um, it was really weird for me with our fertility journey because since I had my fallopian tubes removed when I was 17 I knew that I was always going to need intervention to get pregnant Um, but actually deciding when to start that process is totally bizarre because you have to I don't know whether my body inherently knew after those years that something wasn't quite right because I, I really lost that kind of maternal instinct for such a long time and uh pushing the button and saying we're going to we're going to start an IVF cycle now and you know it's such a bizarre thing to do because then you're in my situation and you wind up pregnant and you haven't even had sex <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the strangest thing but i remember them saying back at that first appointment um blah 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 don't need to do anything take some folic acid mm. and it's sort of the only the only thing, the only supplement that we, that lots of women will take mm. throughout the pregnancy and they probably only take it to begin with anyway. Why is there so much 
emphasis put on folic acid? And then secondly, why should actually the emphasis be on folate mm. rather than folic acid? So a lack of folic acid um, or folate uh, can predispose your baby to midline defects and then the main one being spina bifida, but there's, you know, others um, as well. But, um, and that it's pretty clear. Um, And the problem that we're facing on a public health level is that the majority of women of childbearing age do not get enough folate through their diet. And that's why there's a public health message going out and, you know, there's talk now of fortifying our flour as well. I don't even know if that's happened yet or not. But um, mm. uh, and so and the 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 research has been done using folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate. Folate is found in nature. Folic acid is a synthetic copy, I guess. And the trouble is that folic acid has to go through um, a process in so you have to sort of your body has to kind of process it before you can use it and the problem with that is that lots of people don't process it very well and so therefore they may not get enough anyway and actually the other problem is that if you're not processing it very well then it can also cause sort of bottlenecks and and um actually attach to receptors and actually stop you from even absorbing the folate that you are getting through the diet so it can actually be quite detrimental and you know we're looking for an mthfr snip or this the snips on the mthfr gene um which is you know so the people who will have be having trouble will have this these um alterations i suppose to their genes on the mthfr genes and there are this there are several um, and about 40 to 60% of us have these SNPs. So, you know, it's quite a large proportion of us. And actually, uh, you know, it's not relevant to just women, it's relevant to men as well. Um, there there aren't lots of studies on men and MTHFR in, in relation to fertility, but we know that um, in couples who have been trying to conceive when the male partner took folate, folate instead of folic acid, um they had better success, IVF success rates. So it does, mm. it does. So folate has, is involved in cell replication. And obviously that time of conception is a very high rate of, you know, your cells are replicate, replicating fast. We need the copies to be made perfectly each time. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it the so it's the process of methylation is based a very high need for methylation at this point in time and folate is only one nutrient that we need for methylation you know i mean choline is ma- you know it's massively impacted which we talked about vegans you know most likely will be quite deficient in choline um but yeah so so the solution um i believe is to take folate instead of folic acid as a sort of insurance policy because if unless you've tested yourself and you know that you don't have any of the SNPs, um, you kind of don't know that you're processing it properly. But there's mm. a lot of noise out there and there's some resistance online, on social media, where people are kind of rabbiting the sort of old uh, message. Um, and they're saying, well, there's no data done on folate 
in pregnancy in relation to spina bifida and therefore we don't know if it's safe to take um but i would my response to that is you know unless folic acid has some other action other than its action as a folate um you know i don't know what that may be but you know unless unless that is the case then why not just use natural folate and you know actually all of the high quality brands over the course of the last few years have changed their formulation and um you know we're not going to get a safety study or a, we're not going to go to get folate acid pitted against folate folate in a trial mm. with pregnant women because it just isn't going to happen um it's not going to get approved. You wouldn't get that sort of trial approved. But, you know, I've done this now for 15 years and I've always had people on um, a folate as opposed to a folic acid. And I've certainly never had anyone with any birth defects, actually. I've never had any client have any baby with any birth defects. So, you know, I know that's like a very small sample size, I suppose. But um, I 100% believe, yeah, that it's absolutely safe. And... Yeah, I, you know, give us 10 years and it's not even going to be, we're not going to be having this discussion anymore. Mm. We'll say 20. I don't know. I mean, how long do these things take? It can yeah. take forever, can't it? But um, I just think that unless you're, a, unless you're working with somebody who's kind of at the forefront of research and reading the papers and really kind of staying up to date with the current data, you know, as opposed to someone who's kind of reading the nice guidelines and kind of going, okay, well, this is what the hospitals say. This is what the nice guidelines say. We know that it takes 20 years to filter into, new research takes 20 years to filter into guidelines or the official guidance. And, you know, the British Medical Journal has written about this several times and said, you know, how this is a problem. Um, But, Mm. you know, you don't have 20 years to wait if you're trying for a baby. And therefore you need to work with someone who's a actually looking at what's going on now and what's happening in in the studies and the data and what the data is showing and yeah you know there isn't any concern about folate folate as such um to my knowledge Mm. yeah well there you go um very well put so just to round off then we've spoken about um oh no wait sorry there was one I'm going to I'm going to go with a different question rather than the last one because I really wanted to ask you cuz I had a lot of questions on Instagram when I put this out there that I was going to be talking to you about uh PCOS. Mm-hmm. And so we're just going to end with this topic. Mm-hmm. So how does something as common as PCOS, polycystic ovarian mm-hmm. syndrome affect um a woman's ability to get pregnant? And if you have PCOS, is there anything you should be doing anything different um, if you're thinking about trying to conceive? So we actually, we're starting to get a lot of women who are sort of saying to us, oh, yeah, I'm not ready to try to conceive yet, but I've got PCOS and I want to know that I've done what I can do once it's time. So I think that's really, really lovely that um, people are sort of understanding that this is something you can affect and actually that they start young. Um, but. Mm-hmm. PCOS is a kind of ovulatory disorder, I suppose. So you are likely to have problems with ovulation. Your cycles will generally be long. Um, and also it's a, it's generally you would have high insulin levels, um, which then has a knock-on effect on inflammation. Um, 
polycystic ovaries means that your your ovaries are, are producing more cysts, I suppose, and uh, rather than qualities going for quantity, and so it, your quality, air quality could be affected. So there are a few different types of PCOS. Um, generally, generally you would have uh, slightly. Um, I think physiologically harder a harder time balancing your blood sugar levels. So you mm. will be honing in much more tightly on your blood sugar than perhaps somebody without PCOS. And you, um, we would be working with um, your diet, your lifestyle, your sleep for sure, making, making sure your circadian rhythm is like really kind of tight, as opposed to making sure that you're sleeping at the right times, getting up at the right times, you're eating at the right times, you're eating the right types of food. Very generally, it would be lower carbohydrate, but I would never say no carbohydrate because you need carbohydrates to actually ovulate well. Um, focusing on your stress. Um, you are, so women with PCOS are, uh, roughly 85% of them would be vitamin D deficient. So we would be looking at vitamin D levels. Um, we mm-hmm. have some supplements that are very, very, very helpful in terms of regulating your blood sugar but also pushing those so you would generally have higher testosterone or higher androgens and so pushing your hormones into sort of a more balanced state and therefore um also your weight loss will become easier generally if you're struggling to lose weight not everyone with PCOS struggles but a large proportion of people will be struggling to lose weight so it's kind of like a multi-pronged approach um Mm. Uh, gut issues can also be this quite common um so we would be working with your gut i am massively in love with these wearable blood sugar level monitors me too um there's a few on the market now but they're and they are designed for diabetics but i think they are absolutely brilliant and everyone responds to food so differently so if you and i grace were wearing one we would eat the same food we would have different readings because your body is different to mine. Mm. And it's you having used my own for a while, I've really noticed how stress and sleep affects my ability to process sugar as well and just keep my blood sugars in, in check. And so just learning to really understand your body and what's going on and how you respond to foods and how your lifestyle plays into that, I think can be such a powerful way to begin to instead of sort of punishing your body with hit and starvation which is what most people with PCOS end up doing because it's the only way they've ever known to be able to Mm. lose weight you know which is actually that those things are detrimental to your fertility you sort of start to work with your body and really kind of um, changing your biochemistry as opposed to then make it easier for you to reach your goals whatever they might be so yeah I, yeah so it's it's not that conception is going to be impossible it's just yeah. that there's a little bit more thought perhaps yeah. that needs to go into that journey yeah I mean without ovulation we can't get pregnant so we, you know we focus on ovulation at the very you know with everybody we, you know we need to make sure you're ovulating that's that's step number one for any woman um, and step number two is you know making sure that your your inflammation is sort of low and you're you've got no you know infections and all of this and I mean you, you know it it isn't a quick fix it's going to 
probably mm. not be fixed in three months. It'll be more like six to nine months potentially. But if you have been diagnosed with PCOS at a young age, um, you know, it's never too it's never too soon to start really. Um, and lots of people are put on the pill, aren't they? Uh, when yeah. they, they have problems when they're young and they get put on the pill to quote unquote regulate their periods, which is ridiculous. But, um, mm. you know, if that is something that has happened to you and you think that you might be wanting to try for a baby in three or four years time or whatever it might be, now is the time to start because we can work on this and get you um, in a in a really good place for and ready when you are when you are ready when you feel ready if you ever feel I mean do you ever feel ready to actually start like you said you know remember actually yeah. ready to really sort of start but um, yeah we want to work with your body and not punish it um, is mm. is my take on PCOS amazing um, so anything else that you want to add Sandra before we wrap up or do you feel like we've covered covered enough ground. Um, oh gosh, I suppose, uh, you know, I always worry about doing these interviews because I think people are going to come af- away so overwhelmed and so feeling like they've done everything wrong and it's their fault. And, you know, they've not been eating their dark leafy greens and eggs or whatever it is. But actually, um, it doesn't have to be complicated to change your lifestyle. And if you can bring the joy into it and the get excited about foods and cooking as a couple and trying new recipes, you know, buy a Mediterranean cookbook, which is going to have all the things that you, you know, Mediterranean diet is, um, tends to come up time and time again, as sort of best for fertility. And, you know, if you can just get excited about buying, cooking and sharing food with your partner, then, um, you know, I think that's such a big step on the way in yeah, the right direction. There. Um, and also for the male partner, if they're listening, mm. you know, they're so often removed from the process and feel so, you know, they're, they're sort of shoved in a corner and can't do anything and, you know, they feel so helpless. But there's so much you can do at home, you know, go for walks, um, do yoga together, mm. meditate together or m- massage each other or cook together. Like this and, and those things are or even just sort of commit to go into bed at a decent time and putting your phones down and, you know, supporting each other in doing that. I just think you've got so much power to change um, your your biochemistry by the tiny, tiny things that you do together. Um, and it's not always complicated. Amazing. What a, what a powerful and lovely message to finish on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much again for listening to the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Sandra and found it really useful. If you have any questions that have come up from the episode, don't hesitate to reach out to either of us. And if you have a spare moment, leave us a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.